Good to be together and good to be able to look into the Word of God together. We're going to pick up the next one in the James series, The Real Deal, which is about the reality of our faith and its life-changing impact on our lives. And James, as always, is pretty straightforward and blunt in some ways. And we're going to read one of those straight passages, straight-talking James. We're going to read James chapter 2 and verses 1 to 13. Uh, let's... Uh, pick that up and it's all right if people are still settling but let's read the word of God Uh, if you've got it on your tablet or bible please follow but otherwise here we go my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism my so I'm just going to read that again my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, it's punchy. James is, and he speaks almost a bit like the book of Proverbs at times. He just gives isolated statements. They are tied together a bit more than the book of Proverbs, but you need to sort of uh, dig in a bit and let it hit you in one way at face value and then sort of work out exactly what he's saying. I think in some places here you think, well, what, what is he actually saying there when he gets onto the law? So I hope we'll be able to do that this morning and enjoy doing that. But I hope also that the power and the cutting edge of what James wants to say will will hit us all and will impact us. Now verse 1, James 2 verse 1, lays out the issue James is concerned about. Favoritism. That's what he's going for, favoritism. Now we might use other words. We don't use that quite so much today but it's a good word and we'll look at it in a moment. We might use a word like prejudice which would be equally appropriate or even discrimination which he touches, uh, which is in our translation, the verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? Discriminating one person against another. Prejudiced judgments about one person. Preferring one person or one group of people over another 
on a superficial basis simply because of their social class or status, because of their wealth, because of their race, the colour of their skin, because of their age, because of their sex, you could say. All sorts of things. Making a superficial judgment on something external. James is very clear. Any form of discrimination and prejudice is within the Christian community is sin. That's what he's going to say. That is sinful behaviour when you behave like that to one another. Now, just before we get right into this subject, it's worth just reminding you of what uh, I think Steve said. I listened to it on the first week. That is that James, the James we're reading his letter from, James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was one of the siblings, or the half-siblings, if you like. Jesus was an amazing, unique uh, man, born of the Virgin Mary. But Mary and Joseph did have other children. And you can read about them in the Gospels, their brothers and sisters. Uh, and they didn't always like what Jesus was doing. Not back then. In fact, James himself was amongst those that the brothers who were quite critical once or twice of Jesus. You can read it yourself. But clearly, he's been wonderfully and clearly saved, which did happen to him. We know when he met the risen Lord himself, that also is defined, uh, uh, described in in our New Testaments. James had a special meeting with his half-brother, risen from the dead. James was completely changed. And so now this man is writing like this about Christians, that we are my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to talk about Jesus, his half-brother, as the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And even that word glorious is a loaded term for the Jews. And of course, James is very much Jewish in his background. Because it's a word you only apply to God. It's not a word you use for man. And as another famous ex-Jew, if you like, a Pharisee called Paul who got saved. And he used the term, he described Jesus as the Lord of glory. Now, when they were doing that, they were doing something very specific. They're saying Jesus is God and man. They were using a term. And so James is very clear. Being a Christian is believing in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's putting faith, and every word counts. Our, personal, glorious Lord. God, Jesus, man, Christ, Messiah. It's all in there in a few words. Being a Christian is having a personal faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he also uses another term, my brothers and sisters. And that's a marker for what he's going to say. I mean, James could have been considered a little bit of a celebrity if they had that sort of thing. I mean, he's obviously the half-brother of Jesus. And he led the church, the first church, in Jerusalem. And yet he talks twice in this of other Christians as just my brothers and sisters. He understands that we're all one in Christ, that we are just a family under the, the rule of King, of King Jesus, under the fatherhood of God that we've heard about this morning, and that other Christians are just our brothers and sisters. There's a lot in how James is thinking and speaking right as we open this passage. So let's just be clear. We, to be a Christian, you need to put faith and believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Saviour and Lord, and all, he's, all the Bible says about him. When you do that, you enter the family of the church, and we are all brothers and sisters. Whatever our background, whatever, whoever we are, there are no superstars and celebrities in the kingdom of God, in the church. That's going to be important 
because James wants to touch that subject. I think he's probably deliberately reminding them as he starts this passage. Remember who you are, he's saying, and he's saying it to us, compared to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But remember what he did. He stooped down and gave his life for you. You're saved by grace alone. You're not saved by your merits. You're saved by his merit. You've got nothing to be proud of. Everything's in him. And now remember your brothers and sisters. You're one in Christ. And that's going to be very important for what he wants to do. Because he's noticed, James has noticed, a serious problem in the first century church or the churches that he has dealings with. And he's going to address that problem head on. I don't think it's unique to the first century. I think it's common in the 21st century church and probably has been in every era in between. That's why the Holy Spirit has given us this passage and kept it for us. It was written originally to a set group of people. James was addressing a problem he knew was in those churches and the Holy Spirit has taken it and fitted it together in the canon of Scripture because we have all need it. And, and it's relevant to us today in the 21st century as truly as it was then. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the poison of favoritism and the antidote of love. Because James is addressing a poison that is in the body of Christ. And it's favoritism. Favoritism. Now, I want to, I, you know I enjoy words. You know I enjoy looking at them. So I'm, without excuse, going to dig into this a little bit. When we read the word favoritism, I think we understand that's, that's not good but it has a sort of slightly milder feel possibly in our culture than, than is really behind this. So I want us to dig in a bit. It's obviously an English translation, but it's a, a translation of a Greek little phrase or word that is actually unique to the Bible. That's interesting. I only found that out this week when I was preparing. It's unique to the Bible. You don't find it anywhere else in Greek literature, apparently. And yet this word or little mini phrase is used by Paul, it's used by Luke, it's in Acts, it's used by Peter and James. It's a very common, if you like, thing, the word favoritism. It means, in the literal Greek term is, receiving the face. Just get that in your head, receiving the face. Now that's probably why we've translated it. I, see, I saw your brow furrow there, Phil. But it's actually useful to think about it. What does it mean, receiving the face? It means this. Making a judgment based on someone's appearance. Just judging them on their appearance. Just taking it, you know, looking at the face. Not at face value. Put that out of your head because that's, that's a slightly different thing. That's an English term. Receiving the face means all you do is look at what's in front of you and make a judgment. And basically, James and the other apostles are saying that's not how Christians are to behave. And there's all sorts of favoritisms. This word is in the plural. You see, it wouldn't make very good English, I think, favoritisms. But it's a plural thing because there's more than one way you can do it. James is actually going to dig into a very important one and probably a very common one about between the rich and poor. But actually, you can be favorit favor guilty of favoritism or prejudice or discrimination in all sorts of ways, as I've already said. It obviously can be on rich and poor, but it can be on race, colour of skin, physical appearance, how people dress, what education they've got. As I say, whether they're old or young, you can make judgments on all sorts of receiving the face ways that are not how we should be in the church. The church is not to do that. 
That's the clear word. We don't judge people that way. Why don't we? Because God doesn't. God doesn't judge people that way. Here's a quote from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. You probably know it. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is about the choosing and anointing of David. Don't worry too much about the context. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This was someone that Samuel thought would make a great king. And God said, no, not him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now that is the essence of the issue. People, human beings, are so apt to look at the outward appearance, to receive the face and and to make the judgment on that base. But the Lord looks on the heart. God's interested on what's inside. And what is inside can be very different from what you prejudge or prejudice on the outside. And what God's doing on the inside, or the potential even of, of change on the inside, may also be different. Whereas we put people in boxes and say, well, they look like that. They're, they're, you know, leopard doesn't change his spots. You're going to be like that. No, no, that's not how God does things. Amen? And the people of God, the family, the brothers and sisters who belong to this family, have got to work and think God's way. He leads us into not prejudging, but to look for heart change, to see for, wait for heart things to emerge, to not just judge a book by its cover, as we say, as a sort of uh, phrase in English, which is in accord with this. Don't just judge a book by its cover. Now, James nails this subject because he goes particularly for the issue of rich and poor. And I don't think that is uh, unique to the first century. I think all of us, and I could include, I will include myself, because I try not to, but I think we all do. I think we are all prone to treat well-dressed, impressive-looking people better than someone who looks poor and shabby. I'll be blunt. I think we're all prone to do that. We're all prone to make quite quick judgments on someone who looks a bit scruffy, a bit shabby, a bit poor, as opposed to someone who looks well-dressed, impressive, and uh, looks as though they've got themselves together and they've, they've got quite a bit of resources, shall we say. And it's, it's something that James says, you're not to do that. You're not to think that way, and you're not to act that way. I'd actually say this. I think our modern culture is worse at this, I will dare to say that, than some previous ones. Now, I think our culture in modern Britain would probably slightly pride itself that it's got away from the old class problem of Britain, which was awful. I'm not pro-class thing, where you judge people just in their class appearance. But I think modern culture has brought in a massive range of complexities where you judge people superficially. You judge them receiving the face. I think we live in a culture which has almost made a habit of superficial judgments a superficial judgmentalism. I think we now take notice of the make of clothes people are wearing. It may not be all about top hats and bow ties, it's, but it's other things. We look at whether, how their bodies are, how, 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 how toned they are, how, how, how they look. 
We make uh, judgments on what phone they use, what car they drive, what watch they've got on. Um, don't bother to look at mine. It's very cheap. You probably cost about 10 quid. Uh, they, you know, and, and, and it goes on and on. What entertainment they like, what music, and, and what education, what job they do. And it's a multiple level which is almost hard. It's, not, it's actually more complicated and I think put more pernicious, if I'm ruthlessly honest, than one or two previous generations. I don't think that was necessarily any better to judge me on class, but I just think we can be today, think, oh, we're past all that. We're not. <laughs> we're not past all that one bit. We're, we're worse. I mean, have you, have you ever, and many of you know, you young people get in a terrible state over their trainers. I know rows at home over which sort of train, not my home, because Marion and I are really cool about trainers. We're fine. <laughs> we, go to, we go to wherever we go, find the cheapest ones at the, the outlet. But, but no, no, I'm talking about grandchildren. I'm talking about boys. Uh, and I know there's big issues about what trainers you're going to wear, what trainers you're going to wear, because people will judge you on that. People will judge you on your phone. I know grandsons who don't want that old phone thrown out by mum, thanks. Who said, well, granddad, this is a couple of years ago, granddad's got an iPhone 5. Why can't I have one at least? You know, a few years ago. Granddad's still got his iPhone 5, of course. They're onto 7s or whatever now. But, but, I mean, you know, this is serious. Young and old in the room. We are different in the kingdom of God, but our culture swims in this atmosphere where we make superficial judgments about people. The whole thing is packed, everything. A lot of the entertainment has it in it. So we have really got to get through this and learn how to be different. I mean, why do we do that sort of thing? As human beings and as vulnerable uh, people, Christians even, why do we do it? Well, I think we often feel we want to identify with successful, cool, attractive people. We want to say, oh, I'm, I'm one of them, or I, you know, that we want to sort of get in on their coattails. And we don't want to be identified with foolish uh, people who might be considered failures or not successful. Uh, maybe look, look a little bit uh, scruffy or shabby, like Peter uh, Paul, uh, James talks about. But it's a very foolish misjudgment. It's very foolish. Because a person's heart is much more important than their bank balance or their trainers or their phone or their hairstyle or their body tone. A person's heart is what matters. And we have to be wise and godly enough to get over those superficial judgments. Not the colour of someone's skin. Now, what are we talking about? And, and we mustn't get drawn into it. I think actually just a little quick by the way... In our culture, we need to notice a lot of the things I've just mentioned briefly are to do with finance. So that the, the, the arguments at home that I've heard of about trainers, it's about paying 150 quid for a trainer instead of 30 quid. You know, we're talking, often it's about money. It's about money. I look poor if I don't wear good trainers. You know, actually, let's wake up and smell the coffee. Are, are we actually just playing exactly the same game as James? Oh, they, you know, as the people, James was challenging, you know, that we're worried about whether we look wealthy or not, whether we look as though we're a poor and a bit sad and can't afford it. And we have to learn to get r- totally free of that, that we're accepted in Christ. We follow Jesus we don't follow the ways of this world. That means we're secure in the trainers we wear. And actually, it means we can love people who've got cruddy trainers. I said cruddy, by the way, nothing naughty. Uh, you know, I sort of, you know, 
what are we talking about? We, we are a different kingdom. We march to a different tune. We don't behave like that. And it actually, it actually goes you know, quite profoundly into issues to do with people's, uh, as I say, race or background in other ways as well. Well, he's, he's focusing particularly on uh, poverty and riches here, which are actually a root of a lot of it, not all of it. And he is very clear that we as Christians are to be no respecter of persons, just as God isn't. And it's worth remembering that God, on this issue of rich and poor, God has a bias for the poor. Now, that doesn't mean that poor people automatically get saved. You've still got to come to know Jesus. But actually, God has a heart for the poor, and you can find that Old and New Testament. And those who care for the poor and love the poor and help the poor have God's heart. They are displaying something in God's heart. When I, was just, I could take you all over the Bible for this, but when I was just preparing this week, I'm reading through Proverbs in my quiet time, which I quite enjoy, actually. And, and just over the last two days, here's two verses that just caught my eye because I knew I was preaching on this. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, with a capital M. So insults God. Who, listen, just listen to that. Whoever mocks the poor insults God, insults his maker. Here's another one. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. What? Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, capital L, to God himself. And then the verse goes on to say there is a, a reward that God will make sure you get. Now I, I, now, I think that's God's saying, look, when you do that to the poor, you're lending to me. When you give to the poor, you're giving to me. I mean, there's a powerful thing that comes Old and New Testament that God associates with the poor. He loves it when, when we're caring and loving and accepting of people who are poor, outcasts. Jesus demonstrated it all the time. The outcasts, the lepers, the woman at the well, the poor widow. That It goes on. And, and that is the heart of God. So Christians, brothers and sisters, our church must be big on this. Nobody should come in and feel like, oh, they, they don't want to talk to me because I, I don't fit in, I'm weird. Now, I mean, you may feel a little self-conscious. You may have that, but we want to make you feel welcome. And we, we try to, but we want to do it more. So, but, but, but also, we need a bias to the poor. We, it's not that we, we'll get on to this in a moment. It's not purely about rich and poor, but, but you do need the bias because that's the heart of God. And I love the fact that we've, in recent years, taken on the cap thing and the the, uh, the, the soup service and others but, but you know this is important this is what God like he, he who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord it's lovely isn't it lovely that but if we were to stop at verse 7 we might have almost a political rather than a spiritual argument it's almost like if you go down to verse 7 you could almost because he goes on to say the rich are the ones that taking you to court which was by the way true he's talking about persecution and actually it's still a true point I might as well make it because I can enjoy making these points that quite often in the wider society you might as well remember this it's the supposed winners the wealthy and those who are the movers and shakers who often have got there at the expense of other people. Sorry, that's true. In one way or another, maybe indirectly, it's often some degree at the expense of other people. And certainly, 
in most cultures, and it's still true in ours, those sort of people are rarely the friends of the church. Rarely the fr- it's a lovely you get an exception, but they are often the ones who are more disdaining, the movers, more disdaining, the movers, the shakers, the wealthy, the, in, the influential. Uh, would tend to generally quite often be not great friends of Jesus and his disciples. And so James has got that little edge to him. He's saying, hang on, I don't know why you're so excited about wealthy people. You tend, they tend to be the ones that are persecuting you. So if we were to stop at verse 7, we might end up, as I say, going for liberation theology or Marxism or something. But this is not where the Bible takes us. You don't end up as a Marxist through this sort of thing. That's not how it works. That doesn't solve anything because it doesn't solve the inside doesn't solve the inside. Um, I was reading a book. I didn't, wasn't reading, actually. I was reading a review of a book this week about work and things today. It's too complicated to explain. But a slightly anarchistic sort of person, I think, who was suggesting that the real answer was we had one wage for everybody, exactly the same wage for everybody uh, uh, in the country and, and whatever. And uh, I was just thinking, oh, that's very attractive, human anarchistic sort of thinking. It's rubbish because that's ignoring the human heart. That won't last more than six months for human sin will turn that right upside down. It's only the gospel that solves the real problem. I believe that, the human heart. You can't do it with just politics. I'm not saying don't try and help people and make laws better, but in the end you can't. James is not into politics, he's into the gospel. And from verse 8, he begins to broaden the principle and addresses the whole issue of what's wrong. Why do we show favor? Not so much what's wrong, the answer. <laughs> the answer to what's wrong. The antidote of love. Sorry, I'm moving on. <laughs> and, and, and that's what's coming through from verse 8 onwards. That the answer to the poison of favoritism is not some political thing or some st- structural change, really. It's understanding the royal law of love. And so he goes on to say in verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, etc., you're doing right. So he's basically saying the answer is not that we hate rich people and love poor people. The answer is that we love all people. And sometimes that will be rich people, sometimes be poor people, sometimes it'll be very smart intelligent people sometimes be very needy broken uh, uh, people who, have, who can't even look after themselves but we although we might have a bias towards the poor like God has we will be loving and accepting of all amen it's very important we understand that what does it mean love your neighbor as yourself well, by the way I think he calls it the royal law because it's about King Jesus and Jesus uh, law we'll touch that again in a moment well loving your neighbor as yourself was unpacked for us by Jesus himself we won't turn to it this morning but in Luke 10 you have the parable of the good Samaritan I think many of you will know that most of you I would accept would know that and in that Jesus is teaching that your neighbor is anyone who needs your care and attention and who crosses your path and you have the ability to help them that's what it boils down to your neighbor is someone who needs your care and attention, who you have opportunity to help, and you have the potential, the ability to help. That practically is how Jesus is teaching us. And that may be all sorts of people. It will be just as sinful to refuse neighborly love and care to a rich person as to refuse it to a poor person. 
It's nothing to do with their face, they're rich or poor. It's their need you're responding to and their inner uh, pain, if you like. You're showing love or outer pain that they might have hurt themselves. You're, not, you're show, showing love and care and respect to a person who you can do that to. As I said, it's called the royal law because I think he's thinking of a law belonging to King Jesus. The law of the king that Jesus is over and head of. The law of love. Love in the Bible is not sentimental and um, I don't mean that that's necessarily wrong, but it's not sentimental, romantic. It's not uh, just feelings, which we're very t- wired into today. It's not just feelings. It's practical. In the Bible, it's always practical. It's showing practical care, self-sacrificing care for another person, serving another person, caring for them. Inconveniencing yourself for someone else is the essence of what the Bible means by love. That's what it means. Now, you might feel good about it or you might not, but doing it is what the loving act is. It says, love your neighbour as yourself. And uh, that probably helps us in a way, if we think about it carefully enough. I mean, I'm speaking about myself perhaps, but I'm sure it's true of most of us. About yourself, I think you don't always feel good. I don't always feel good about myself. I'm not too about feeling well. I'm just feeling myself. We're often a bit critical of ourselves or a bit disappointed with ourselves or maybe a bit unsatisfied with how we look or something. We're not necessarily happy, but I think most of us, most of the time, are very concerned about ourselves and give a lot of attention to ourselves and look after ourselves and make sure ourselves have what ourselves want. <laughs> I maybe only speak for myself. Maybe I'm the only sinner in the room. But I think... I think that gives us a sort of clue. This isn't purely about, it's not like, I think sometimes this is taken and distorted with a bit of modern sort of psychobabble that somehow, you know, you have to love yourself before you can love other people. You can love other people and not love yourself. That's fine. You just treat other people like most of you treat yourself, i.e. go the extra mile, be nice, do things you want, give yourself a break. You know, that's what it means. It means be as good to others as you are to yourself. It's not only, it's not really about emotion. The Bible isn't so wired up as to be manic about emotion like we are today. It's about action. It's how you behave. So we, we can be good to ourselves. We need to be good to others. Jesus said particularly to those who are in his church. Let's look at John 15, 12 very quickly. My command is this, this, love each other as I have loved you. So we must start with the church. And here I'd like to make a little comment. I'm enjoying myself this morning. I think, to be honest, we are often nicer to people outside the church than to some of the people in the church. And that isn't great. I found people will be very, sometimes, and I'm wonderful, this, what I'm about to say is wonderful, they'll be very patient and tolerant with perhaps people who say on the soup service or cat, you know, and I want that. I want that big time. But I would like you to be as patient and tolerant for the rest of us in the church as well. So make sure that literally you love your fellow disciple as truly as others. So I think it's obviously good to think outside the church, but actually James is targeting, first of all, the church. And that's certainly what Jesus means. He's speaking to his disciples. Love each other. So it's about us together in the church as I have loved you, says Jesus. 
Now, the last bit of James gets into talking about law. And uh, as I say, I, I enjoy looking at this sort of thing. I hope you will too. Because I looked at this, I thought, is James a legalist? Don't have it crossed your mind. How can you impose love by law? What is he talking about? Well, as I was thinking and reading and thinking, I think there are two important things that James is addressing. He is not a legalist and he's not imposing law on Christians. But he's touching two important things. And this is the first one. Favoritism and prejudice are sin as much as sexual sin and murder are sin. And Christians, all of us, don't always get that. We all, as people and as religious people, perhaps even worse, but all people do it, are inclined to grade sins ourselves according to our preferences and our behaviour and what we think. Well, that hardly matters. A bit of favouritism, oh, we all do that. But actually, no, no, no. James is saying, you, you are, that's law-breaking. You're not loving your neighbour as yourself. You're breaking God's royal law. That's as serious as any other law-breaking. And this is an important subject, actually, because it helps us to understand sin, actually, and it helps us to understand why we needed a saviour. And so I'm going to take two minutes to broaden it out because actually sometimes, even if you're not yet a Christian, you think, well, like, I'm pretty good in lots of ways. I don't do that right and that right, but loads, of, I'm gone, loads better than them. And we need to understand the whole thinking of the Bible, the whole truth of theology is that sin is first and foremost offensive to God. And, and therefore, all sin is bad. Someone has said... Uh, uh, but you say, well, no, let's, let's start with the problem. You see, we think of law in our country as a set of separate uh, entities, and you can break you can break the speeding law, but you're not um, you know you're not breaking another law. So you take one law and that, and uh, you know, and it's all, that's how law works. We think. Well, I think with God, it's different. Honestly, um, it says here in verse eleven, "He who said." Law, that means God. Law is God's will. It's God speaking. God has wrapped himself up in his law. So if you break any of his law, you are offending and despising the living God. That's the weight of it. It's not like these are a lot, this is a little law over here and that law. This is what God says. It's his will. It's his mind. He's, he says these things and you say, I don't like that one. I'm quite like that one. That's an insult to God. All law-breaking is highly offensive to God. Let me use a different illustration, not unique to me. I found it elsewhere. You could have a pile of stones, and you can take one and break it, and all the other stones aren't affected. That's a little bit how the law of our land works for you. But God's law is like a sheet of glass. If you break one part, the whole lot cracks and shatters. You can't say, well, I didn't do that, I did that. It's all broken and spoiled. God's law is like a sheet of glass. It's not a pile of stones where you can take one and say, I've left all the others unbroken. We all needed Jesus to die for us. Not one of us would have got remotely near to the holy God on our own merits. I don't care how polite, how well brought up, how well you've behaved, you have shattered the glass time and again. 
with your envy and your pride and your selfishness. So did I. So did I. I was brought up in a good, middle-class, Bible-believing Christian home. And I broke God's law innumerably. But I didn't murder anyone. I haven't committed adultery. But I am a sinner before God. I'm well down. I have plenty of things I've done wrong. Plenty of things. You know, I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I haven't worshipped God. You know, you go on and on and on. The glass is cracked from side to side. I needed a saviour. And so did every one of you in this room. Every last one of you. None of you would have got near to heaven on your own merits. None of you were remotely acceptable to God on your own merits. It's just because he loved you and sent Jesus to die for you that you have this wonderful hope of the gospel. Amen? And in principle, we need to live like that, which is probably how James is tying it in. We can't, as Christians, think, well, it's changed now. I, I just do a little bit of this, and a little bit, I'm a little bit envious, I'm a little bit of favoritism, I'm a little bit grumpy, a little bit complaining, but I don't commit adultery, I don't murder. No, 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 that's still the same principle. God doesn't like that. He's, Jesus has told you to love your neighbour as yourself. He's told you to do it. You don't do it, you're despising Jesus. That, that is the, the weight, oh, if you like. What did, I did say two things. I've probably given you about four. I can't remember where I am. But, but the, I think that was all one, actually. Uh, but, but actually, I got a bit carried away. But actually, there is a wonderful truth in here as well. This is the second one. True freedom, true freedom comes by coming under the law, in inverted commas, of King Jesus. Coming under his rule. That's what he talks about. He says, um, he says the law that gives freedom. What is he talking about? The law that gives freedom is coming under the rule of King Jesus. You are free to say no to sin. You're free to obey God. You're free to let the Holy Spirit change you. Being truly free is coming under the authority of Jesus. Amen? Coming under the royal rule of King Jesus brings real freedom. Sin is not freedom. Doing what pleases yourself is not freedom. Doing what pleases Jesus is freedom. Amen? That is what he is saying here. And actually, this is practically right about the gospel. It's wonderful to live in the new covenant gospel age because Jesus has died and risen again and sent his spirit to change you from the inside out which is what it's all about. That's what it, that nearly rhymed. It's what it's all about. It's about the heart and having a new heart and a new spirit. And that will come out in action. You will begin to behave differently to other people. In Romans 8.4, it says, it's not on the screen. Romans 8.4 says this, the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The New Testament, the New Covenant is about the Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit coming in and changing you. And you begin to live in a way pleasing to God that would never have been possible but for what Jesus has done. It would never have been possible by law alone. It's, it, the, the requirement the law was after, which was holiness, can be met in you by not living according to the flesh, but living according to the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, Letting the Holy Spirit guide you, 
uh, letting the Holy Spirit change you from one degree of glory to another, we can begin to fulfill the royal law. Not by law, by spirit. I hope I haven't lost you. I see a few blank faces. But be with me. It's exciting. So it's not really putting legalism on you. It's saying this is the royal law of Jesus. And it's a law of freedom. You can be free to love your neighbour. You can be free from all that stupid prejudice, that horrible discrimination, that pride and fear, an horrible mix that makes us like that. It's fear and pride and uh, all sorts of insecurities. And you can be healed to love people and accept them. Just like Jesus has loved and accepted you. Isn't that wonderful? That's what the Holy Spirit does. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit will be love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness. It will make you love others. It will help you rather than make you love other people. And as he comes to the climax of this, James gets that wonderful last phrase. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's wonderful. It's a great phrase. But you cut. Why, why has he suddenly put that in? The actual punctuation in English is quite right. It's a whole sentence. It's a little sentence on its own. And it actually, you can't work out, is this a statement or a commandment? Well, it is a statement. It's not a commandment. And it's not a question. It's not an invitation. It's a statement. He suddenly just goes, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what James, as he finishes this passage. And most commentators, and I will join them in this, think it's a quick reminder of the cross. It's a quick reminder of the way the whole thing works. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That when Jesus died on the cross, the judgment of a holy God, which had to be satisfied, sin had to be dealt with, fell on him. But by sending his only beloved son to die for us, God found a way for his mercy to triumph over his judgment. And our whole Christian life is because God has found a way for mercy to triumph over judgment. So in the context that James is writing, in the context of our behaviour, James is saying, so let's live as people who understand that in the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. That we don't judge people all the time. We're not, we're not tied into judgmentalism. We're not tied into superficial judgments. We will be more merciful than we will judgmental. Christians need to be known for that. They have not always been known for that. Now, it isn't purely the same as tolerating sin. That's another sermon. But we need in our spirit and our attitude to be people who are known to be merciful and gracious and accepting and not judgmental and rejecting. Because that's how God is and that's how Jesus has been to us. And I am going to end with this. Let's put up the last one because this is God's love and we're going to show it. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Don't you sometimes feel that you're almost, you know, you just read it, don't you? This is John. We've just read James. John's a little easier to follow on this, really. So here it is. It just lays it out clear and simple. You know, God loved you. He demonstrated it. We didn't love God. He loved us. 
We demonstrate that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And we will. And in practice, many of us do. I think many of us would say we have changed enormously through being Christians. I don't want to leave you gloomy, but I do want to leave you challenged. (laughs) Because we're a work in progress. And, you know, we need to keep understanding this and letting it work through. We need to be able to love people and accept them without judging them on their appearance without just receiving their face and making a quick judgment. Let's, uh, let's have the band up. I'll give you a pause for a moment. And then I want us to just settle this and pray as we, as we close. We will close in a moment, but we're just going to have a, a song and a little opportunity to respond. Let's stand together. Let's stand together while they get their instruments together. Let's stand. And before we sing, I just want to uh, say something in, in, into you, uh, which I just feel on my heart, really. Very simple thing. So just please hear this. I think there are some of you here this morning who have been the victim of favoritism and prejudice, particularly in Christian circles and possibly in family or close friendship, places where you might not have expected it, you have been hurt by favoritism and prejudice. And I believe God wants to completely heal you from that this morning and free you from the damage that's done. And when we finish singing, we're going to have an opportunity for people to come forward for prayer. And I'd like you to take that opportunity if you want to, but obviously we pray for you. We'll have people here to pray. But I think there's also some of you who, perhaps even as I've spoken, have felt a bit convicted that you are yourself rather prejudiced and judgmental of others, superficially writing them off. And God says, that's my spirit. I want you to walk free from that this morning. I will change you. I am changing you from one degree of glory to another. So this is another step, another degree of my change. Let me do it. Let me free you. I've, I've prompted that in you because I want you to walk free from it. And if that is you, I'd like you to come forward. So you won't be able to tell who's who. I'd like you to come forward for prayer as well that you think, look, I actually have been quite quick to prejudge people and be judgmental and, 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 uh, and discriminate. And I, and I want to be free of that. So I think there's victims of it and there's those who are conscious of it. And I think God wants, to pray for, wants us to pray for both of you. But finally, I think there is a general appeal here that all of us, even those who haven't felt the extreme one way or the other, all of us are to be making an effort to show love to those we don't know so well or who are less like us. Make an effort to show love, that's practical friendship really, to those who are less like us. And I think there will be an exhortation of the Spirit 
for all of us to take that on board. Maybe even in the very coffee time after this morning. Just go and speak to people you haven't spoken to for a long time or ever, never spoken to. Just let's begin to try and, and practically work out this truth in this community.